And what I want us to see is that the last few hours of Jesus' life on earth shape not just his final time on earth as a human, but it shapes our eternity. That the final hours of what Jesus accomplishes on his earthly life shapes our eternity. It doesn't just affect us here on earth. While it certainly does, we can have a relationship with Jesus. That relationship then transitions us into eternity. So the final hours of Jesus plays a massive role in how we view eternity. So I want to get right into the text this morning. So let's pray and we will get right into John chapter 18. God, we thank you for who you are. That you are a loving God. You are a good God. God. So as we focus in on your word, help us be attuned to what you have to say to us, God. Get me out of the way so that the people hear you. Help us to respond to the free gift of the cross, of what it means to be in a relationship with you, to love you, to serve you. God, help us to leave this place changed, not just from the outside, but on the inside, that our hearts will be renewed with the truth of the gospel. God, be with us in these few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to see two two scenes in John chapter 18 that help shape um, our viewpoint of Jesus' final hour and how that then applies to our lives. So two scenes. The first scene that we see is Courage versus denial. Courage versus denial. We see that in verses 12 through 27. In the first 11 verses, Jesus has transitioned out of the upper room. He takes his disciples to the garden where Judas knew, and Judas, who's already betrayed Jesus, then captures Jesus. He takes roughly, some scholars agree, that there's a thousand men that come to arrest Jesus. Judas obviously didn't know Jesus very well because he thought Jesus would put up a fight. They take a thousand men and they then arrest Jesus and they bind him up and then Peter acts out of um, frustration and you can read in um, the first few verses that he chops off a guard's ear and Jesus immediately rebukes him. He's like, you don't understand what I'm doing on earth. You don't understand what's getting ready to happen. This cup that I'm getting ready to take has to be taken by me. And we get to this section in verse 12, and they say that Jesus is bound, and they take him to the high priest. I love what John Calvin, one of the reformers, said about this verse. He said, let us remember that the body of the Son of God was bound in order that our souls might be set free from the bonds of sin. Our Savior was bound not just because that's the only way they could capture him, was because we can be set free because our Savior is bound for us. So as we progress throughout this story, and we see the courage, and we see the sacrifice, we know that it's for all of us, that what Jesus is accomplishing is for all of us, and Jesus is taking deliberate steps to the cross so that we might be set free. He's the one that is displaying courage within this situation. But we know that Jesus displays a holy type of courage. It's not just that he mustered up enough um, He wasn't just brave for a certain amount of time so he could accomplish it. It's the type of courage that can only be accomplished by a rescuer, by a redeemer. It's not just that he did something cool for a few hours, but he's our rescuer. He's our only hope. 
the rulers and the authorities don't overcome Jesus. He voluntarily sacrificed himself to fulfill the eternal plan of God. And the same power and the same authority that was demonstrated when he calmed the waves of the sea and the same power and the same authority that was demonstrated when he raised dead men to life is the same exact power and the same exact authority that were seen in his arrest, in his trial, and in his death. That's the Jesus that we serve. And in verse 15, we read here that Simon Peter followed Jesus. And this is where we transition from the courage then to the denial. That Simon Peter and one of the disciples, we don't know who that is, many people like to agree that it was John who's writing this book, follow Jesus. And you remember that there are nine other disciples that are currently with Jesus. One betrayed him, so that leaves 11. Two went with Jesus, so then nine have just ran away. They went the other way. Jesus gets bound. It's one of his darkest times in his earthly life, and nine others run away. But we have two that remained with Jesus, Simon Peter and the other disciple. And they go with Jesus. And this other disciple knew the high priest, so he gets Peter just a little bit farther into the courtyard. They're standing courageously with their Savior. They're saying, if he goes down, then we're going down with him. We want to be with our Savior. And yet we interact with this servant girl in verse 17. She said, you're not one of the man's disciples, are you? How does Peter respond? No. No, I'm not. You have me confused for somebody else. I know I have a familiar face. I know I may sound familiar. I know I have an accent that, may, that gives away where I'm from, but you have the wrong man. I am not him. This is just hours after, Jesus, after Peter promised Jesus that he will never leave him. He will never run away from him, no matter what happens, no matter what may come their way. And yet here we are in Jesus' darkest hour, and Peter says, no, I'm not one of his disciples. It initially started off so well, and yet here we are. He went for loyalty, and he fell. He denied his own Savior. And look, we often can do this as well. We don't like to admit it, but we can make all these appeals to our Savior. God will never leave you, will never forsake you. We can say the right things in church, to our small group, to our friend group. We can do all the right things. We can want to be courageous for Jesus, which we all should have that desire that we want to stand tall, that we want to be courageous for our Savior, but oftentimes we fall. And while we may not deny Jesus verbally, we may deny him with our thoughts, we may deny him with our actions. We may even deny Jesus with our, the way we live. And maybe we, we don't verbally state it, but we all have the tendency to do that. To deny Jesus in our hearts. I want to encourage you today that if that's you, that Jesus hasn't written you off. That if you have denied Jesus in your heart, Maybe you've denied Jesus verbally. He's not done with you. As sinful people, we like to write people off. 
If they hurt us, if they deny us, if they make fun of us, if they don't agree with us, we write them off and put them out of our minds so we don't have to think about them. Our Savior is not that type of way. When we fail our Savior, He doesn't write us off. He keeps us written in. John immediately transitions from the denial. And he goes right back to um, Jesus, standing courageously on trial. He's taken um, from Annas to, um, or he's taken from being bound to Annas. And they begin to question Jesus. They're interested in two things. They're interested about his relationship with his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus says, don't even, don't mess with my disciples. They didn't do anything. Your, your beef is not with them, it's with me. So you deal with me and you let them go. You don't mess with them. And then they also want to know, the high priest and the religious council, they want to know what Jesus has been teaching. And they say, maybe you've been teaching something in secret. Maybe there's like this secret group. And well, how does Jesus respond? He says, I haven't taught anything in private. Everything has been in open. It's been in the synagogues. It's been in the temple. My message has been proclaimed to anyone that wants to hear it. There is no secret message for the secret people in the corner of the room. The message is for all. So the question arises, what message is Jesus talking about? If you remember through the Gospel of John, this is his message. In the synagogue, he said, I am the bread of life. And that no one comes to me, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who ever believes in me will ever thirst again. And in the temple, he proclaimed this. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. The message that Jesus proclaimed in the open to anyone is the gospel. He came to courageously die and proclaim his gospel through his death. That it brings salvation to all who will be accepting of him. All those who are cut off from God can now be in a relationship with Jesus if we believe. And we continue on in our passage. And in verse 22, after Jesus said that he spoke everything out in the open, the officers didn't like what Jesus said, and they strike Jesus in the face. And look how Jesus responds in verse 23. He essentially says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about what is wrong. Like, I want a fair trial. If you're going to accuse me for something, then prove it. In verse 24, Annas is then done with Jesus. He says, I'm not going to deal with this guy. Let's take him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the reigning high priest in this time. So we're going to take him to him, and then he can now deal with him. Because I don't want to deal with him anymore. To see the courageous rescuer, to see our only hope, calls us to a response. To see what Jesus is doing and how he's preparing for his death calls us to respond. It doesn't call us to respond in a type of pity and feel bad for our sins and feel um, bad for ourselves because of the way that we acted. It also doesn't call us to live in a brave, like I'm holier than you type of way either. And the courage of Jesus doesn't call us to the martyr complex where we are always the one wronged. Rather, the, the courage of Jesus, the type of Savior that we serve, 
calls us to response in total dependence of him. It doesn't call us to be brave. While yes, we should stand strong for Jesus, it doesn't call us to throw a pity party for the way that we've sinned and wronged Jesus. It calls us to total dependence of him. To fall in our face in complete awe of our Savior, of what he's done for us. And that should cause us to rejoice. While yes, we should respond to our sin and deal with our sin, it's our Savior that that he's the only one that can make it clean. And in that, we totally surrender to him. Jesus has then been taken to the high priest. And John, how he writes this, he really does transition from courage to denial, back to courage, back to denial. Jesus, or we then interact in verses 25 through 27 with Peter. Peter has already denied Jesus once, and he's getting ready to do it two more times. He says this, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. Peter took an oath here with, his, with the people. He's not just saying like, yeah, I'm not, like, I don't know Seth. He took a strong oath to say like, I have no association with this man. I have no idea who he is. I just happened to stumble into this courtyard and I just wanted to watch what was getting ready to happen. I don't know this man. So then somebody standing there also warming themselves around the the grill says this, well, I was there when Jesus was bound and I think you look just like the guy that cut off my my family's ear. Like that's kind of a big deal in our family. Like I know I'm going to remember you. Peter's like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. That wasn't me. And as soon as he denies Jesus for the third time, what happens? The rooster crows. Exactly what Jesus has prophesied to Peter shortly before all this went down. And you can imagine in the other Gospels it portrays that Jesus then, as soon as the rooster crows, he looks at Peter. And Peter knows what he's done. Peter understands what he's done. And we'll see in this passage that oftentimes we think that when we deny Jesus, especially three times like Peter does, that God's done with us. But we're going to continue in a few weeks, and we're going to get to John 21. And we interact with this beautiful story of Jesus. After he's resurrected, he comes down and he interacts with Peter. And if you remember the story, he restores Peter. He restores him. And then Peter lives this courageous life for his Savior. We get two books of the Bible from him. And then when, Jesus, when Peter dies, they try to crucify him. And he says, I don't want to die in the same way that my Savior has died, so crucify me upside down. Peter has been restored. God wants to do the same exact thing in your life. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you new. He wants to make you whole. And it only begins when we totally surrender to our Savior. When we see the courage of our Savior, we respond to it. He wants to restore you. So we see the denial of Peter and how there's still hope for those that have fallen. And that's good news because I have fallen. I fall short every single day. But Jesus picks us up. And he makes us new. 
see that Peter has fallen. We've also seen the courageous Savior and that he's not just brave, but he's our rescuer. He's our only hope. So in verses 28 through 40, I want us to see the second scene, and that is truth on trial. We've seen the difference between courage and denial, and I want us to see in verses 28 through 40, truth on trial. In this next section, we see our Savior on trial boldly proclaiming the reason, the very reason that he came down to earth. The high priest has had enough of Jesus. We don't really get this interaction here, but Caiaphas is done with Jesus. He didn't want to deal with him either, so he took him to Pilate. He took him to the governor's headquarters. And Pilate then takes Jesus under trial. And in verses 28 through 33, you can read it. We see the hypocrisy that consumes the Jews that tried to kill Jesus. We see that they want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. They want to take him to Pilate to be tried, but yet they won't even enter in the headquarters because that would make them ritually unclean for the meal that they want to take. So they're like, we're not going to step foot in this place because we want to be able to enjoy a meal. We want to make sure we're still in a right standing with God, but we're going to manipulate the judicial system We're going to twist the way the government is ran, and we're going to do all these things in order to get our way. We're going to manipulate everything we can to get our way, and Pilate sees through it. Pilate and the Jews, you'll have to read their history. They do not really get along. And Pilate's like, wait, if he says he's the king of the Jews and you're the Jews, why don't you guys just put him on trial? Why don't you guys handle it? The Jews are like, no, 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 this is, a, this is a government problem. You need to take care of it. And they get Pilate to interact with Jesus. And you can imagine just the scene where Pilate walks in and Jesus is on the main floor. Pilate's upstairs and he says, are you the king of the Jews? We see this in verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? This is an interesting question from Pilate. So when we go back to our Bibles in the Old Testament, we find that Israel didn't really need a king because God led them. They were God-governed and God-defended, and yet they continually wanted to cry out for a king and be like all the other nations. So what happened is finally God granted them a king, and he brought them Saul. And then after Saul, he brought them David. David was an incredible king. David then died. And you can read throughout the whole Old Testament. After, you get, after David passes away, you'll be hard-pressed to find another good king of Israel. So David dies. All these other kings come in. The nation was then split in two, and they became captives. Their desire to be like other nations was disastrous. They wanted a king. However, that's not the whole story, is it? Long before the people were given a king, God promised to send a king to rule not only over the earthly kingdom, but over all nations. One of the central themes of the whole Old Testament is the coming king who will reign over an eternal kingdom. He promised not just a king to reign over all the earthly kingdoms, but over a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And in John chapter 1, Nathanael asked 
Jesus. He said, or he calls him king of the Jews. Nathaniel says, yes, you are our savior, king of the Jews. Pilate is seeking the same answer here that Nathaniel has already found. And the answer will be found in Pilate's actions as we'll unpack this passage. So Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 36, we see Jesus declare an eternal kingdom. That he didn't come here just for the earthly kingdom. So as we understand the difference between an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom, it forces us to look at the truth of God's word and not the earthly world for instructions of how to live, for how to handle situations, for how, to, for how we find our truth. Christians often feel out of step with the world, that we're di- living differently than the world, and we should. Because we're not of this world. We don't serve just an earthly king. We serve an eternal king that's already seated at the right hand of God. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, verse 36, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Jesus is declaring here that he knows what's going to happen. It's the eternal plan of God in action. And he says, if I was here just to fight for an earthly kingdom, then there would be a fight that's getting ready to happen. But Jesus says, we're not a part of this world. We serve an earthly kingdom. And sometimes it feels like we're swimming upstream. That we just want to fit in. But Jesus calls us to an eternal kingdom. One that swims upstream, that's one that's different than the world. I want to encourage you to have the courage to keep swimming upstream with the truth of the gospel. Not to turn around and swim downstream because it may seem easier in the moment. Live in the truth of the gospel. He continues on, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. And in verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are the king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. This is why Jesus has came, to show us the way. You remember that Jesus said earlier, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So when we look at this, there's this glaring question that we have to answer. Why do we then need the truth of the gospel? Why can't my truth and my understanding be enough? Why do we need the truth of the gospel? Why do we need the truth of the cross? We need to see and accept that the truth of our own hearts is like a pigsty. That it's dirty, it's rotten, it's gross, it looks terrible. Nobody likes to actually look at our hearts. And when we try to go our own way, when we try to do things outside of God's truth and we make our own truth, we make our own plans, here's what happens. We then, around this pigsty of our own hearts, we build this beautiful house. We go buy all this wood. We make this huge house around the pigsty. We have a beautiful white house. There's a big welcome sign leaning up against the house. The flowers that have been planted are now blooming 
Everything about the exterior of your house is just gorgeous. Every person that drives by stops and stares at it. All your friends that come over compliment how lovely your house looks. Everything is going great for you right now. But what happens the moment that your friends are like, let's see the inside. You're like, oh yeah, the inside. Well, we haven't, uh, we haven't touched that yet. So we haven't completed that. See, what happens is as soon as you open up the front door, the pigsty is still there. Just because we changed the exterior doesn't make the interior any better. And the truth of our own lives is exactly that. We like to change the appearance without changing the interior. But when we accept the truth of what God has said through his word, he takes the pigsty and he begins to clean it up and he begins to remove it. And it's not a quick process either. I wish it was. But he removes a little bit of it, and then he removes a little bit more, and then the smell begins to weaken, and then before you know it, Jesus then changes your heart. Religion, our own truth, only fixes the appearance while Jesus can o- changes the heart. Jesus changes the interior. Jesus said we came so that people may know the truth. He didn't come to fix our appearance so that, would it, that it would please people. He didn't come so we can act more spiritual than the next person and Jesus juke everyone we can. What he came to do is change our heart with the truth of the gospel. He came to pick up all the nastiness of our own hearts and make it clean. And I can tell you, he can. If he can take the nastiness of my heart, of my sinful heart, And he can say, Matthew, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you whole. I'm taking the nastiness out of your heart. He can restore yours too. He can pick it all up. And he's the only one that can make it clean. And yet we so often, including myself, like to take all these other exterior things, be like, maybe that will do it. Maybe that will satisfy. And it just can't. Because Jesus is the only one that can take the pigsty of our own heart and make it clean. In verse 38, Pilate makes this interesting um, remark to Jesus. He says, verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then look what happens. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. So Pilate's like, so what is truth, Jesus? See ya. And he's just gone. He doesn't even let Jesus respond. So whether Pilate understood what truth is or Pilate didn't even care to know what truth is, he's questioning what's happening. And he goes out to the Jews And he tells them, he questions them of who they want to be set free according to their tradition. It's their tradition that they would release one man in this time. And how do they respond? Pilate says at the end of verse 38, I have found no guilt in this man. He says he's the king of the Jews, but I found no guilt in this man. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. That's kind of a light way to put what Barabbas has done. Barabbas is a murderer. Barabbas is a terrible man. And we're going to interact with this a whole lot more next week. But the story ends in kind of an interesting spot because they want Barabbas set free and then the story just ends. And we'll see next week that they get their way. 
that our murderer is set free. But in this passage here, this is all about the truth getting to the people. Getting to the hearts of the people. That the people may know that everything that has taken place, even when Jesus should be set free, he's not. All of this has taken place so that we may understand the truth. So that we may know the truth. So I want to leave us just with a few quick application points for this. What do we do with this passage? The first thing I want us to see is that when we see our courageous rescuer as our Savior, it calls us to a response of total dependence on Jesus. That our only response is surrendering to our Savior, not pity over our sins and our shortcomings, but total dependence on Jesus. Total dependence allows us to confess our shortcomings, our failures, our struggles, and give them to Jesus so he then then can clean up our pigsty. And we can then rest in the arms of Jesus, knowing that he's accomplished it all, knowing that he's done it for us. So we find our total dependence in Jesus. But secondly, I want us to see that truth wins. Truth wins. While it may not have gone Jesus' way in our own earthly minds, truth wins. While the story of chapter 18 leaves us in a cliffhanger of a Savior that has been on trial, we ultimately know that the truth of the gospel always prevails. That this isn't the end of the story. The war has been waged and it wasn't even a struggle. Jesus won. Today your hearts may be heavy that the truth of your life versus the truth of the gospel is at war. And maybe today you're working through a tragedy or a difficulty or a valley and you're wondering if the truth of Jesus is enough. I want to encourage you that Jesus went on trial so that you can understand the truth and so that we can then live that truth out, that Jesus is enough. He went on trial so that you can know the truth. The case is closed. While the trial may not have went our earthly way, it went our eternal way. And maybe for the first time today, you've heard the gospel, that the gospel really is for you. Even though we failed too many times to count, even though we've denied Jesus in our hearts, and you can hear the voice of our Savior calling you, and he says, come to me. I want to clean up the pigsty of your heart. I want to make you whole again. The Bible tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if that's you today, please come talk to us. Don't waste this opportunity of saying yes to Jesus. It's a, it's a decision that you will never regret. We can regret a lot of things, but saying yes to Jesus and living in eternity with him is one that you will never regret. Say yes to Jesus today. Live in dependence of him and know that truth wins. Let's pray.